This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. It is written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, in a tiny little side room in Brooklyn uh, during a pandemic with kids playing outside and birds having returned. But I'm assuming that if you've made it this far into all of this, you have learned to live with all of that. So welcome back to Maxine the Planet's Unknown and this week's episode. This is episode 20, chapters 44, 45, and 46. Chapter 44. Sumner came screaming back into consciousness with a crashing suddenness. It felt like someone had woken him up by tossing him three stories into a vat of ice water. His heart was racing and kept taking deep, lung-filling breaths. His brain was howling past a million thoughts, and he was desperate for a drink of water. Then he realized it was pitch black. Was this what death was like? A manic episode that you had in a total void? Amphetamax, a voice from behind him. He turned and noticed first a faint glow and second searing pain in his gut and arm that seemed simultaneously severe and foreboding and also distant and unimportant. Still, it lent a tightness to his limited movements. Using his good arm, he turned himself on his butt, trying to resist the urge to twist his midsection. When he got turned around, he saw Laurent sitting over a chemical glow stick. What? Why was he shouting? Amphetamax. High-powered stimulant. All NHI security personnel have three doses of the stuff sewn into each article of clothing. I gave you one. So we have eight doses left. You have... Sumner stopped himself and refocused. He continued through gritted teeth. You have speed sewn into your clothing? Laurent seemed to smile. Yeah, if you get injured or you find yourself in a situation where sleep might be fatal and you need to make sure that you have what it takes to attend to whatever situation you're in, you jab the micro-injector into your thigh and boom! The only way you'll be unconscious for the next seven hours is if someone chops off your head. And I'm not even entirely sure that would work. Sumner didn't feel like he could express an opinion on that without shouting at the top of his lungs. So he decided to sit there and deep breathe instead. Laurent took his silence as an invitation to fill him in their current situation. Okay, you are full of Amphetamax, as I said. I used the last of the sterilizing foam to seal up the wound in your gut. I also gave you the full dose of the antibiotics that came in the all-in-one, so both of those are used up. That's why I used your shirt to dress the shoulder wound and the broken hand. Sumner looked down to see that he was naked from the waist up, that there was a huge patch of hardened sterilizing foam across his midsection, that his khaki uniform had been torn into strips and wrapped around his shoulder and upper right quadrant, and that whatever was left behind had been wrapped around his right hand and wrist. He also noticed the front of Laurent's shirt was covered in blood, and began to realize it was probably his. I carried you in here, into the cave. That explained the darkness. 
patched you up and, well, you've been out for a couple of hours. A couple of hours? Laurent put a hand out in a keep-it-down gesture. That gut wound was pretty deep, and you'd lost a lot of blood. You were not coming around without the Amphetamax, and I needed to be sure that when you came up, you wouldn't screw up the foam seal. Like I said, there's no more of it left. As it is, your guts aren't going to fall out on the floor, but I have no idea what is happening inside there. You might still be leaking blood and God knows what else into your abdomen. I made a judgment call to let everything set before I brought you around, and I am not in the mood to debate the choices I made. Sumner looked into the darkness and sighed. All that said, if you are going to be able to move around, this is probably our window. If you are going to turn into a septic mess, I have probably staved it off for a day or so with the antibiotics. You're welcome. But if you are bleeding internally, and the foam didn't seal it all the way, then at some point you are going to fall over and that'll be the end. Amphetamax can't raise the dead. Sumner took that in and nodded. He saw the logic of what she was saying. But losing a full two hours or more, with Maxine out there ahead of them somewhere, still hurt. More than all of his wounds. So, this is our window. I don't know if it's two hours or two days. But if you can move, we should get to it. I can move, Sumner said. Laurent tossed him an inactive glow stick. Another feature of NHI fashion accessories, we have a couple more of these. Sumner put it into his pocket after Laurent had hauled him to his feet. She waved the glow stick around the chamber, and he got his first look at it. There were more of the large crystals and a generally downward drift to the floor. The stream seemed to have worn some small pools into it, giving it a kind of natural staircase quality. Assuming that they had come from up, the only direction to go in was down. It occurred to Sumner they were lucky there were no branches, and he wondered what they would do when they came to one. He guessed they'd have to figure it out when they got there. Okay, he said. I guess you lead the way. Chapter 45 It occurred to Maxine that she had never really visited anyone else's residence on the Contiki. Well, that wasn't necessarily true. When she was little and her parents were still alive, she'd had a couple of play dates with other kids, though the only ones she really remembered were with Cherie Taylor. Those were memorable because Cherie had a Harvey Hound VR that they had played over and over and it never got old. Or at least, it never got old for Maxine. Cherie might have been pulling her hair out for all Maxine remembered, or, at that age, had been likely to care. Kids could be pretty mercenary about relationships. But as a non-child, as someone who made their own choices about where she went and when, as she had quickly become once she had come to live with the well-meaning but inexperienced Sumner Gray, Maxine didn't think she had ever been in anyone else's residence. She'd grown up on the Contiki and had spent her lonely kid years exploring it with the kind of rigor that only lonely kids explore, getting to know its public spaces and all the out-of-the-way no-man zones, unguarded storage areas, 
less used maintenance crawl spaces, scaffolded walkways, better than almost anyone. But that still meant that she had really only seen less than a third of the ship, and even in the third that she had become an authority on, she had always felt like a visitor there. She didn't feel like she was seeing it at its best right now, because the residence she was seeing was a mess of heaped clothes, dirty plates, and discarded bits of food. Ms. Mondavari, the person who lived here, certainly was not at her best. Ms. Mondavari, to her students, Judy to her friends, was sitting at her desk. Her head was almost touching the faux wood, her arms akimbo in front of her. There was a drying and greasy pool right below her hovering face that Maxine thought must have at least started out as drool, but now seemed like there must have been some bile in there as well. Her skin was gray, and her face was drawn and gaunt. Her eyes were open, but they had rolled up so that only the very bottom of the irises were visible. Maxine could tell that she was not dead, because she was making a sort of short, clipped, wheezing sound. On the desk were three handheld pads, and a desktop screen. Two of the pads were powered down, but one pad and the desktop unit were sitting on charging pads and were still aglow. There was a sickly sweet smell coming off of Mrs. Mondavari. It smelled like rot. Maxine had had Ms. Mondavari as an English teacher. She hadn't been a great teacher. She'd been distracted, and it often seemed as though she were just going through the motions. Like being in the room with the students was just a thing that she had to do before she got back to her actual life. Maxine had observed that in a fair number of people in the Contiki. It was to some extent a society of people whose roles were prescribed by necessity, not by choice, and for some of those that translated into this going through the motions vibe. But even if she weren't a great teacher, that did not warrant this. Suddenly, the horror of what was happening here began to swell in Maxine's mind. What would do this to someone? What could be so cruel as to, then Maxine was in the bathroom staring at herself in the mirror. I'm Selena Simon, she thought in utter disbelief. She smiled at herself and tried out a couple of Selena's signature poses from the VR she'd grown up on. She was aware that she had been thinking about something else, something not as exciting as this, but much more what? Definitely not as fun, that was for certain. Then, Mr. Humphreys was standing in the doorway. Come, Miss Maxine. There are things I'd like to show you. She followed him through the door of the bathroom in the heart of a residential unit on the Contiki and then found herself suddenly standing knee-deep in snow. It was shocking for many reasons, but not least of those reasons was that she was suddenly, for the first time ever in her life, truly cold. She was in a dense forest. She could see that there was a deep green almost to black under the blanket of white, and she was freezing. She'd done wintertime VR games before, but they were always kept at a temperature that was lower from the outside world, but still well within tolerable levels. This was different. This was a sharp cold, almost instantly painful. This 
is a delightful place I found inside that young woman's mind. It's called Norway. Maxine felt like she was constantly catching up to herself. Only when Mr. Humphreys phrased it in just that way, inside Ms. Mondavari's mind, did she realize something that she had known for quite some time, but had failed to look at directly, that Mr. Humphreys was getting all of this from the minds he had encountered. Of course, she'd never been to this Norway. She'd only seen moving pictures or projections of the place. But it's amazing how you creatures can turn such scant information into something that feels so real inside your own heads. Then, under his breath and almost to himself, he said, Really? You people do most of the work for me. Again, a fleeting shiver. He was harvesting entire consciousnesses and then socking them away as reference material. This was the providence of all the things he had shown her. Only now did it occur to her how invasive this was. Then there was the obvious fact that after he harvested these creatures' entire life experiences and retained them, however he or it was doing that, it slash he had simply discarded the rest. It was monstrous and shocking, but it should not have been a shock because she felt certain that on some level she had put all of this together a long time ago. But her mind seemed spread out, disjointed. It was like her brain and her knowing had been separated out into various rooms, and the parts could kind of shout one to the other and be heard ever so dimly. But there was no throwing open the doors and getting the band back together. There are parts of herself that knew or had guessed things, but they were not able to communicate that knowledge to the rest. Then there were animals, and her brain was suddenly jolted back to the now, if that's what this was. They were beautiful, tall, deer of some kind, white and gray mostly, with little hints of tawny brown coming down over their broad backs. They had great racks of antlers that swept back in high and dramatic crescents branching off at both ends. They milled their way through the snow with a kind of solemn dignity. They would root around through the high snow with their nose, their breath coming out in diffident huffs of misty steam. Occasionally they would look around. Their eyes were alert and you could sense the great sheets of muscle that hung loose and ready under their thick hides, but their movements never betrayed fear, and no energy seemed to be wasted on anxiety or skittishness. When they needed to run, they would run. When they needed to fight, they would fight. But right at that moment, they needed to browse and chew, and so that is what they were doing. As Mr. Humphreys and Maxine stood there, the troop of animals, maybe a dozen or so, passed around them. Maxine began to notice there were young among them, huddled close to the flank of adults that she assumed were their mothers. Their heavy heads with their gently arched snouts came up to Maxine's, or maybe more appropriate to say, Selena's collarbones, but their antlers reached high above her head. They moved around and beyond the badger and the girl in an unhurried, almost imperial disaffection. They were... Majestic, 
What are they? Maxine said. When she spoke, Selena's voice came out. These are reindeer. Wait, she knew reindeer. There was a flat screen thing that Sumner insisted they watch every Christmas. It was this herky-jerky, utterly primitive piece of filmed entertainment that, as Sumner had explained with a reverence that went way over Maxine's head, involved moving tiny models a fraction of a millimeter, taking a still photo, and then doing that over and over again until when you put the photos together, the things seemed to move. There were very, very few occasions when you might catch a little bit of evidence that Sumner Gray had once had a childhood. Most were random glimpses. This was the only one that came like clockwork at the same time every year. And it was very, very Sumner Gray. Even the things that made him a kid again were hard work that required strict focus on a singular goal. He must have been the most fun child in kindergarten. But that program had featured reindeer. Little cartoonish model reindeer. But those were brown and spindly things with little nubbins on their heads. The thing had really undersold these animals. Then again, the reindeer on that program also talked and experienced crises of self-doubt. So, a lot of liberties had been taken. The creatures before her were dignity manifest as natural beauty. They're amazing, she said to Mr. Humphreys. Then, they were bones. Suddenly, the world around Maxine was searingly hot, and the once green mountains where she had been standing knee-deep in snow were now barren brown rocks, rippling in the heat. There were ghosts of the trees, some at least, scorched over dried-out husks, mostly fallen and dry-rotted, baked to an ashy tan. The ground looked like it had never fed vegetation of any kind, the place was desolate and obliterated. The sun was unrelenting, as if it was still not yet satisfied with its work. No life could possibly be surviving here. And to prove it, all around Maxine and Mr. Humphreys were the corpses of reindeer. Hollowed out carpets of ragged, dusty fur and flesh draped over crumpled piles of bones. Their eye sockets were collapsed into holes in their faces that had shriveled into horror masks curling back over bared teeth and jutting jaw bones. They were ruptured and deflated. Their organs had baked and burst, been scavenged or otherwise left to dissipate and shrivel to nothing. Insects had clearly gotten them at some point, but there was no movement now. Not even insects could withstand this in any large numbers. Maxine had been standing this heat for just seconds, but coupled with a shockingly sudden transition, she was already feeling lightheaded and wavery. What was all she could manage? This is what you did to the northernmost reaches of your planet of origin, your Earth. You caused a heat wave that disrupted and perverted the natural processes of your home. Your world attempted, in its primitive way, to compensate for your endless hunger, your need for more resources, more energy, more room, more food. Maxine stared in disbelief. 
when? Is this, is this now? For just a second, Mr. Humphrey seemed confused by the question. Then, he seemed to come around. Now? No. This is in a year your people call 2120. She took this in, several hundred years ago. Droughts and heat waves at the turn of the 22nd century. She remembered this. She had not read much on it, but she vaguely knew that it had happened and that a lot of people had suffered. This was before Mars colonization had gotten into full swing, much less planetary colonization outside the solar system. That was all still ahead of them. That was all still ahead of them. So we survived. Anger flashed in Mr. Humphrey's eyes. You survived? Yes, yes, you survived. Suddenly, they were standing in a marsh of mud and standing water. Before Maxine was the skinny, dead heap of a polar bear that seemed half submerged in the mud. Great black flies buzzed around its muzzle. She did not survive. Then, they were watching a jungle burn. This rainforest did not survive. Then they were standing on a beach which was littered with millions of dead fish being jostled lazily with each wave that came in. They did not survive. Mr. Humphreys whipped her through sight after sight of ecological disaster. As he did so, a list of numbers appeared in her mind. 1462, 2011, 2164, 2211, 2223, Years, these were years, it was year after year of planetary destruction. Finally, they found themselves watching mice pick through the brittle remnants of a field of dead grain which lay collapsed and brown. It was a mild day and there was rain. The badger offered no explanation as to what had happened to the grasses. The answer seemed obvious to Maxine. We did, she thought. Mr. Humphrey's anger seemed to have dropped to a low boil. You survived, he said. You survived, they did not. But I understand, you are limited. Those parts of your world are still separate from you in your mind. So, let us show you, you. Maxine saw many things. She would never know how long she was in any one place. Everything began to come together, not as a blur. Nothing so diminished. Nothing could minimize the horrors she witnessed. But as a kind of whole, it was a quilt of terrors, each square distinct and vivid. She watched men on countless battlefields hack at one another. Some did it with swords and spears, others with knives and bayonets. Greedily, they spilled one another's insides onto fields so soaked with the blood of their fellow men that it sopped up to their knees. She saw people in hospital rooms. Some died in agony and some died in resignation. Ebola outbreak patients died writhing in tents while their doctors looked on helplessly. Men who tried to contain Chernobyl stared at drop ceilings while their bodies melted from the inside out. Refugees from places that were too devastated by climate change to live in anymore sat in barbed wire encampments. In Normandy, on the southern border of the old United States, on the edge of the Saudi Arabian desert, people who had nowhere to go sat jammed into makeshift cages 
while their children cried and their eyes went cold, staring at nothing but space beyond the fences. Then there were the riots and the unrest. People who were being killed in dangerous factories were beaten by men with clubs in the early 20th century. In the 21st century, people who had been singled out for persecution by the authorities because of the color of their skin were tear-gassed by those same authorities for the crime of finally having had enough. Hungry people rioted at an Earth Food Center in 2185 and again at a Martian distribution outpost in 2198. Both times men in uniforms with clubs and gas showed up and the brutality commenced. Maxine and Mr. Humphrey stood watching as an emaciated teenager, disoriented by the chemicals he'd been sprayed with, slammed his fists on the glass dome of his Martian settlement, seeming to have forgotten that what lay beyond was even more lethal than his current situation. Yes, you survive. You always survive. But at what cost to the planets you inhabit? The other lives that must share them with you and the members of your own species who have the misfortune of not being born with every advantage. Maxine had no answer. Mr. Humphreys sighed. It's not just you. I showed you that. You survive, but you are diminished by the parts of yourself that you chew up and discard along the way. But you are trapped in the idea of yourself as separate from the things that make you possible. It's a flaw of all small minds and brief lives. One of your own people said, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. The badger smiled a bit. I like that. It's surprisingly wise for one of your kind. When this is done, that is one thing I will keep close. Maxine looked at him. When, when this is done. Mr. Humphreys did not return her stare, but his small smile fell away. Yes, I think we're almost there now. Chapter 46 The cave had many eyes that Sumner and Laurent did not see, but the eyes saw them, and as such, so did the consciousness that was Oxalus. Now that consciousness, some piece of it anyway, turned its attention more directly to them. So far, what they had encountered was what they might understand as an automated defense system, intuitive, facile, flexible, but not a function of focused intelligence. But now that intelligence was sparing a little piece of itself to think on these two small creatures. They were working their way through some of the smaller chambers, the large cabin with the hive ship still ahead of them. These things had been annoyingly persistent up until this point, and if it were taking stock of its many, many eons of raising defenses against such incursions, it had never encountered this many strays. The small and less evolved live according to the demands of their fears. If you could trigger that fear, they would pretty much kill themselves trying to respond to it. 
That was the power fear held over the tiny lives of these tiny creatures, and it was the most efficient and resource-conservative way to get rid of them, because they did most of the work for you. But then there was this Maxine creature. She had responded differently, and something happened to Oxalis that had surely happened to it before, but never so precisely. Its curiosity had been piqued. It wasn't like knowing her was something that was otherwise precluded. It would have known her the way it knew everything that came to it. It would have recorded everything she was just the way it had recorded the rest. All these creatures came here and breathed the air, and on Oxalis, the air was full of things that served Oxalis and were Oxalis, and none of them knew that they were being stripped of all that was of use to the planet, just as they did not know the planet was cutting them off, isolating them, and starving them. Oxalis was not incurious, but it was unsympathetic. Until Maxine. Until it had decided that it would directly interact with Maxine, with this girl. It had come to know her in a way that it had not known those things that had come before. The others it had simply transcribed into itself and moved on. But what was happening here was it was it was going both ways. It was having an effect. When had it started thinking of itself in terms of a self? When had it started defaulting to think of itself by the name that it found in her mind, Oxalis. When had it started thinking of the face it used to interact with her, Mr. Humphreys, as in some way distinct from the rest of its consciousness? How had all of this happened so quickly? These tiny and imperceptible changes were seismic. It had survived mass extinctions and cosmic disasters and epochs that rolled into ages and it knew change, but it had never changed this way. It had never changed so quickly and so internally and so silently. And in spite of all of that, it had never changed so fundamentally. What would the unconcentrated eons after this singular instance be like? When it returned to the diffuse state and drifted back to its global consciousness, what would it take with it from this strange and discreet moment? So strange. But then came the problem of these other creatures, which were apparently drawn away from the quarantine the planet had imposed by the unaccounted-for girl, by Maxine. It got it. It had also come to have a relationship with the girl, with Maxine. But things were drawing toward their close, and it was time to tie up loose ends. It'd be moving on from this little dip into small time pretty soon. At which point, notions like pretty soon would dissipate back into the irrelevance they normally held for it. And it would need all of this to be attended to. It needed to staunch the bleeding before it could start the process of scarring over this latest invasion. So, more direct action. 
it did a quick inventory of its options. The simplest thing to do in these circumstances would be to let them get into a deeper chamber and then suck the oxygen out of the room. Hypoxia, loss of consciousness, death, done. But just as soon as it thought to do it, it knew it didn't want to. At least it didn't want to yet. The death of these things, all of these things, had been decided and it would happen. That was necessary. But not right away. But why not right away? When was better than right away? It was almost done with this moment. It was almost done with her, with Maxine. And then it knew. Part of itself coalesced to form an answer. It wanted these things to find the girl now. It wanted these things to find Maxine. The thing it had been trying to stop for so long. Now that seemed needed, important. But why? Why did it seem important? Because it did not want Maxine to be alone when she died. When it killed her, it wanted her to feel not alone. What a strange thing to want. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.